0: There's been significant media attention and international concern regarding the emergence of Middle East respiratory syndrome in recent years. In the last week, the BMJ has published a practice article on Middle East respiratory syndrome, looking at some of the questions that doctors and healthcare professionals might have about this condition. One of the authors of this article, Sarah Shalhoub, a infectious diseases consultant from King Farhad Armed Forces Hospital in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia has joined us to discuss the article. Hello Sarah. Hi Kate. Hi. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So perhaps we could first start, as I said, there's been lots of media attention around Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or MERS as it's more commonly known. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about when it first emerged and what the fears were Well, it was first reported in November 2012 from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia,
1: and um, it was basically a case report um, on a gentleman who was admitted in with severe pneumonia. He was investigated, and um, uh, genetic sequencing was done to identify a seemingly unknown mysterious virus, and um, that turned out to be MERS. Um, At that time, it was called uh, coronavirus EMC in reference to the Erasmus Medical Center in Holland, where the... um, Coronavirus was sequenced first. And then a retrospective investigation um, of an outbreak in April 2012, a few months earlier in Jordan, uh, took place where 11 affected individuals were involved with, again, a seemingly unknown virus that caused severe fatal pneumonia, eight of whom were healthcare workers. And um, in retrospect, the saved samples were tested, in that, um, and there were positive for MERS as well. And so uh, there was a lot of fear at that time and a lot of editorials emerged in multiple um, different clinical journals asking whether um, we were facing a new outbreak similar to SARS. So, of course, there was a lot of uh, fear. However, luckily, it had an effective reproductive number of less than one. And therefore, epidemic potential is until the moment is considered very low unless the virus mutates, of course.
0: So, as you mentioned, there was initially this um, this concern about it being the new SARS, but but as you say, this hasn't um, hasn't turned out to be the case. It hasn't been as prevalent or uh, found to be as infectious. So, so what is the prevalence sort of at the moment? How, how did it emerge from that point?
1: So, from that point, um, a number of clusters were identified. Uh, very few community clusters or family clusters, if you will, were reported, but mostly um, larger outbreaks have been um, related to nosocomial outbreaks, so outbreaks within the hospitals, um, in in dialysis centers, in crowded ERs, and um, admission floors. And so um, this was largely blamed on um, poor infection control practices, and um, once strict infection control practices were implemented, we haven't been seeing um, quite a lot of these outbreaks, luckily. So uh, within the community, the transmission does not appear to be um, that consistent, uh, at least it's not consistent with an outbreak, at, at least in the community.
0: And, and going back to outbreaks in the community, what, what do we know about the virus now and how, how do we think it is contracted?
1: Well, um, if you want to refer to the uh, taxonomy, like at a genetic level, um, it's an enveloped, single-stranded RNA virus. It's a beta coronavirus. It's part of the lineage uh, C group. It's phylogenetically distinct, however, from other previously identified coronaviruses which include um, the human coronavirus that causes um, community-acquired upper respiratory tract infection, namely the HKU1 and the OC43. Um, it's also different from um, the SARS coronavirus um, it has been most um, closely um, related to um, the bat coronaviruses, HKU4 and HKU5. However, um, it was found to be distinct um, from those bat coronaviruses as well, um, when certain amino acid
0: sequences were compared. And and from the article, I see that we now know its reservoir is actually in camels. And um, just sort of wondering how big a problem this is
1: so um so you're quite right about um about it being um reservoired mainly in camels namely dromedary camels um so or the single humped camel um and um interesting papers have emerged um, recently that uh, where serology samples were serologic testing were um done on saved sera from as early as the 1990s um, from camels um, in, in Africa, and certain parts of Africa, and they were actually found uh, to have antibodies to MERS, coronavirus, which was very interesting. And nobody really knows why um, MERS hasn't really emerged in humans until 2012. Now, is that a big problem or not? Well, it really depends on, on which parts of, let's say, the Arabian Peninsula you're talking about. So the, the heavily urban cities, the large cities, um, you don't get a lot of um, camel contact. However, in certain rural areas, um, camel contact is part of the daily living. Um, it's being done on a regular basis with milking camels, um, eating some, um, sometimes undercooked camel meat, or con- consuming unpasteurized camel milk, uh, which is a very common practice. Um, so in that sense, it, is, it can be a problem. Also, um, butchers who work in abattoirs are also at risk of contracting disinfection. So, um, which is why a lot of health um, awareness campaigns have been done to educate um, people who are in contact with
0: camels to follow strict infection control precautions. And practically, what sort of advice is being given by these public health um, uh, campaigns for people who might have...
1: Well, for instance, for people who work with camels like they milk camels or um, they slaughter camels, it is uh, advice to, um, not to come too close con- in contact with the secretions, and if they do, to wear a mask, um, keep washing the hands, never touch the face or the mucous membranes if they have come in contact with these camels. and um, if there are any camels that are sick or have increased secretions, to sort of isolate them if possible. So that's the sort of advice that's being given for people who consume their milk or their, um, or their meat to cook the meat well, to pasteurize the milk, um, make sure they undergo these regulations um, before, before consuming the camel products.
0: And In the article, you actually um, discuss how the majority of transmission is actually between sort of human-to-human contact, so infected humans to... Uh, sort of other other human contacts. What's being done? What is the advice um, uh, to prevent those transmission between humans? So uh,
1: again, health awareness campaigns have really um, focused on maintaining hygienic practices, not to come close to patients who have upper respiratory tract infections, um, patients who are very um, ill with an unknown uh, respiratory illness, or with an unknown cause, or or it can go directly to healthcare centres and declare that they might be um, a case of MERS. Uh, maintaining hand hygiene, um, that sort of thing.
0: And and you mentioned one of one of the sort of key concerns has been transmission within hospital settings, so nosocomial infection.
1: Quite right. So um, there were papers emerging that revealed that um, the virus actually. Survives in fomites for a longer period of time in cold and dry environments. So that really resembles the kind of um, temperature and humidity that you have within the hospitals. And so again, um, like um, infection, maintaining infection control practices is key.
0: If a, a patient is presenting to um, healthcare, what are the typical symptoms of MERS that um, that healthcare workers should look out for?
1: So typically, um, healthcare workers should look out for fever. Um, so I'll just go ahead and list the symptoms, and then just mention a few caveats that healthcare staff should really be careful with. So fever has been very common, um, but the re- the reports have varied from 40% of cases to 98% of cases. So you see the large variation. Um, cough is a predominant symptom as well, mostly dry, sometimes productive of. Um, Uh, or even hemoptysis, but in rare occasions. Um, Shortness of breath has been reported in 50 to 72% of cases. Um, And there's a a different type of presentation completely where respiratory um, tract symptoms would be more or less absent. And patients would present with um, fever, diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, um, myalgia, arthralgia, headaches, and so um, this presentation would really resemble, um, like, incerovirus or even dengue fever, which is prevalent in Saudi Arabia. So um, other patients would present with um, severe pneumonia that had already progressed, so sometimes they would have cyanosis, um, severe shortness of breath, uh, tachypnea. So um, one of the things that really caused, I think, was the contributor to the outbreaks that occurred that some patients would present with um, respiratory symptoms but absence of fever um, particularly patients who are older than 60 years of age who have comorbid conditions that would compromise their immune system such as diabetics or patients who are on hemodialysis so they would not they may not have fever and so with um, with the fluorid um, infiltrates on the chest x-ray they may be mistakenly um, thought to have uh, pulmonary congestion or fluid overload, and they'd be sent down to the dialysis unit, they'd get dialyzed where they'd expose the other immune-compromised patients and only to later discover that they actually have MERS. And so um, there's been a lot of um, campaigns to raise awareness about that absence of fever should not preclude um, pursuing a diagnosis or suspecting MERS diagnosis. So that's very important to keep in mind.
0: So really... Healthcare workers are encouraged to keep MERS in mind for really any sort of non-specific presentation.
1: Yes, and in fact, in the uh, in the Saudi MOH um, case definition, basically any community-acquired pneumonia warrants for uh, MERS uh, screening, and um, several hospitals and several institutions have developed their own um, pathways to sort of uh, quickly and swiftly detect patients once they show up in ER. And, um, like in my institution, we have included it in bold that fever may be absent in certain individuals. And so everybody's aware of that now because, you know, the consequences of delaying diagnosis can be devastating
0: and and in order to actually diagnose um, mers what samples what are the gold standard samples that would usually be required is sort of a nasopharyngeal aspirate enough or or would you need a bron- bronchoscopic sample what what's what's generally done to diagnose so bronchoscop-
1: bronchoscopic samples are not routinely required and and they're mainly being done if the patient is already intubated and there's a question of whether or not he has MERS, then yes, um, a, a bronchial lavage would be obtained while the patient is mechanically ventilated and intubated. Um, in, an, in another individual, like any other individual that would walk in with these symptoms and you'd suspect MERS, obtaining um, a sputum sample has actually been repeatedly shown to be a lot more sensitive than obtaining a nasopharyngeal swab. If so, if the patient produces, is able to produce sputum, um, collecting a sputum sample and running a PCR on it is advised. If the patient, however, has a dry cough, then yes, obtaining a nasopharyngeal and an oropharyngeal sample is recommended and those would be collected. And of course, um, you would confirm the diagnosis by running a PCR on it.
0: And, and once that is confirmed, As your article discusses, there isn't any currently any specific antiviral drug therapy. So what kind of supportive therapy do you recommend or is used?
1: So supportive therapy would be um, depending on what the patient really presents with. So as you said, um, multiple different um, antiviruses have been tested and studied and unfortunately none of which have been consistently shown to improve survival at least long term. And so some patients present with mild um, picture of upper respiratory tract illness. So say they have fever, um, body aches, some upper respiratory tract um, symptoms such as a cough, like a dry cough and a normal x-ray. And they're not at risk of progressing, like developing a progressive infection. So younger patients, um, non-diabetics, non-renal failure patients. So those that would be quite safe um, to uh, send them home, Um, they'd go for what's called home isolation. So they'd be given instructions how to care for themselves, um, to use um, a room by themselves, uh, better use um, a bathroom by themselves, not to share it with other people. And they would stay there until um, they're declared free of infection based on repeated samples that are being collected by you know, um, healthcare workers who would visit the patients in the house, so that would really um, cut down the number of patients who are admitted with MERS to avoid uh, spreading the infection within the hospital. Other patients would present with severe um, sort of pneumonia picture or those who are at risk of developing progressive infections, such as renal failure patients or diabetic patients or older patients. So those, um, especially if they have a pneumonia, would get admitted. Um, Of course, you have to maintain a good oxygenation, so make sure this oxygen attacks do not fall below 90%. Uh, they should receive um, antipyretics, analgesics to relieve fever and pain. Um, fluids, um, make sure they're hydrated well, not to overhydrate, of course. And antimicrobials could be considered, um, particularly if you're suspecting a superimposed bacterial infection, like a superimposed pneumonia, like a bacterial pneumonia, which has been frequently encountered so make sure they're they're treated well from that and um, so they get proper antibiotics as needed.
0: And you mentioned that obviously there is this severe, um, uh, for some patients there are severe consequences. What is the mortality rate for MERS and is there any, for those that do recover with supportive therapy, is there any longer term morbidity, morbidity associated post infection?
1: Of course. So with patients who present with severe pneumonias, um, as you mentioned, uh, those usually require intubation and uh, doing it electively would be better actually and they'd get mechanical ventilation and other supportive therapies. Some of them have even required ECMO. So studies have reported a variable mortality rate between 38 to 67 percent. Um, statistics from the WHO indicate a mortality rate of around 36 percent. In all, ca- uh, Across all cases? Across all cases, yes. And from the Saudi MLH, that's about 42%. So you see varied, like a hugely variable mortality rate you could report among different studies because some studies focus on virtually any suspected or, I mean, any confirmed MERS case. And some studies um, basically focus on severe MERS cases. And in those, you would expect the mortality rate to be high. Regarding the long-term morbidity, there really haven't been a lot of studies that looked at that. Um, most patients either recover or or succumb to their illness. Uh, some of them require a tracheostomy to be done um, in order to wean them off the ventilation if they require to be ventilated for a long time. Apart from that, um, there hasn't been um, any reports of long-term morbidities, like debilitating morbidities. That is.
0: Um, and finally, we sort of touched on um, the fact that. There isn't currently any antiviral treatment. It's, it's all supportive therapy. Are there any emerging treatments? Is there any research ongoing that is looking promising um, to to find any antiviral treatments?
1: So, there's a lot of research done on um, on developing monoclonal antibodies um, that would target MERS, and um, it has been promising, but um, nothing has reached phase two trial yet. Um, same goes for um, using convalescent syrup from recovering patients on other patients as well. But um, again, this is all still um, in the very early phase. So nobody really knows how that will pan out. Uh, there are some other antiviruses that were found to be effective in vitro and in animal models. But um, again, uh, some of them were done, but the numbers of tested patients are very limited, and the results haven't been quite... Um, Staggeringly um, positive, or you know, haven't really given a lot of hope.
0: And actually, finally, is is there still fear amongst physicians, healthcare professionals in the region, or has has this just become part of normal, everyday sort of medical healthcare work? So the
1: initial scare has really died down, and um, physicians have become accustomed um, to the idea of potentially coming in contact with patients who have MRs, and um, they feel a lot more safe and secure by strictly applying infection control practices. The main fear remains is of nosocomial outbreaks. And so, um, as I've mentioned, the policies of visual screening at ER and clinic waiting areas, um, doing quick chest checklists and identifying uh, potential cases and rapidly isolating them in designated areas where a trained staff would handle them. Have really um, developed um, quite nicely over the years. Um, For example, in Saudi, the Ministry of Health um, has really employed rapid response teams where, whenever there's a a confirmed MERS case, um, a team would be dispatched on the same day of diagnosis, of confirming the diagnosis. It would be dispatched to the hospital where the patient is admitted and either the patients would be um, swiftly transmitted to a designated hospital in the area to admit MERS patients or they would at least um, do rounds and meet with physicians who are in charge. Um, They would interview nurses and healthcare staff and ensure the infection control practices are in place and that there are no emerging outbreaks. So this has been proven quite successful so far. We haven't really seen any major outbreaks for the past year, which has been very encouraging.
0: Fantastic.